Thank you, Richard. Let's uh, just remain in prayer as we pray for the talk. Father God, thank you once again that we're coming to your word, and I pray that you would uh, speak to us through your Holy Spirit, and you would meet us uh, tonight in a, in a way, uh, in the same way that you met Paul uh, in our reading as well. Amen. I'm hoping on the screen we'll have a, there he is, <laughs> uh, Tiger Woods, um, and the, uh, it's an advert for Tag Heuer Watchers, and the tagline there is, what are you made of? Which is great, isn't it? Because we very soon found out what uh, Tiger Woods was made of, didn't we? It was an amazing transformation um, from this uh, ultra-reliable, very well-paid, superb role model, uh, good husband and father, to this sort of scandalous villain that he very quickly became uh, following a car crash when he crashed his car into a tree, if if I remember rightly. An amazing transformation. Right, thank you. We can do away with Tiger now. Because uh, we only look at a different sort of uh, amazing transformation, uh, equally uh, quick, equally um, dramatic, um, but in the different direction. So we're looking at um, the, uh, the, the story of Saul's conversion today, and one of the worst things about this passage is, do we call him Saul, or do we call him Paul? And uh, we're so used to calling him Paul that I've elected to call him Paul for most of the, uh, the talk. So we're talking about Paul, but that's Saul. You knew that. Paul was one of those really annoying, clever people uh, who'd started out with life uh, with many advantages. I mean, if he'd been born in Norwich, he would have lived in a big house in Newmarket Road, gone to Norwich School and got a scholarship to Oxford. Not that there's anything wrong with any of those things before I upset half the families in the church, but that's what Paul would have been like. He was born in the city of Tarsus. He was a Roman citizen. He'd studied in Jerusalem under the uh, the great... uh, uh, Jewish teacher of that time called Gamaliel. And it was, Paul was a bit like his star pupil. Uh, in some ways, he far outstripped his teacher in religious zeal. Uh, if you look at Acts 5, Gamaliel was, one, was the one who advised the Sanhedrin to leave the Christians in peace. He said if they weren't from God, they would fizzle out. If they were from God, then they wouldn't be able to stop them anyway. But Paul, his pupil, thought differently. Paul first turns up in uh, chapter 8, verse 1. If you want to have a look at that, that's page 1,101. So you see there, immediately after the stoning of Stephen at the end of chapter 7, we see the the small line in the beginning of chapter uh, 8, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. And something must have deeply disturbed uh, Paul as he was watching that death, as he was watching the stoning of Stephen, because very soon after that, we see in uh, uh, verse 3 of chapter 8, Saul began to systematically, really, destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them into prison. And Paul himself tells us in Acts 26, uh, he used to go to the Sanhedrin, and uh, when, they were up against, when these Christians were uh, up against the Sanhedrin, he would cast his vote against them so that they would be executed. But unfortunately for Paul, the church didn't just lie down and die quietly. It was a bit like a balloon. You know, when you blow up a balloon and then you try and pop it with a blunt instrument, your hand or your foot, uh, it just squeezes out in another place, doesn't it, and pops up somewhere else. And the church was just like that. It, uh, he squeezed in it. Uh, he squeezed on it in Jerusalem, and it just popped up somewhere else. Which is why Paul had to pull a few strings, get authority from the high priest Caiaphas, and go off to foreign cities to go and persecute uh, the followers of the way, the Christians 
uh, wherever they went. Thus it is that we come to chapter 9 on page 1102 of the page, and verse 1, where we find Paul still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and who is walking more than 150 miles across national borders in order to reach Damascus, where he hoped to find and capture uh, followers of Jesus, uh, imprison them, and bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. He was a driven man, and he had the authority from the high priest to kidnap, imprison with impunity. Why did he hate these people with such a passion? Well, let's uh, look at it from his point of view. Paul wrote later in life to the church in Philippi, he wrote, Paul, that is, was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless, he says. You can almost hear him totting up his achievements and advantages. He was chosen by God, check. Good man, check. Right club, check. Good at religious ritual, check. Part of the in crowd, check. Hating the out crowd, check. Painful operation on centre of variability, check. He was the man. He was faultless in his own eyes. You see, fundamentally, Paul was somebody who believed that man could be good enough. Good enough to meet God face to face and give an account for what he had done. And he believed that he, Paul, had done everything he possibly humanly could to make sure that he was on the right side of God. Now, of course, since uh, 9-11, we're used to reports of religious fanatics who preach hatred against the infidels, plot violence and death, uh, and to anyone who doesn't believe exactly what they do. But it's not just the religious fanatics who think this way. You see, many people believe that they're going to be okay. You see, they either think, well, don't worry, because there's probably not a God, as Richard Dawkins would have us believe and prints on the side of buses. Or if they do believe in God at all, then they think that God isn't actually very scary. And if there is such a thing as a final judgment or a day accounting, then actually they're going to be okay, because basically they're good people who've worked hard all their lives and never done any intentional harm. And if we press them a little bit more, then they can always pull out the trump card, which is to say, well, okay, I may have done some things wrong, but at least I'm better than him over there. And Jesus told a parable about somebody like that, didn't he? This person went to the temple and prayed, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And funnily enough, of course, the man in that parable was a Pharisee, just like Paul. But the Pharisees weren't the only ones to think like that. Many of us today, many people today, think that they're good enough on the basis that they're better than them over there. In contrast, what were the Christians saying? Well, they were saying that none of these things were important. They were preaching forgiveness for rotten people, for people who hadn't tried very hard, who hadn't gone to the right school. They were saying that God accepted people not because of the sacrifices that they'd made in the temple, but because of the sacrifice that God had made by sending his son Jesus to die in our place. They were saying that this Jesus had risen from the dead and now reigned in heaven, standing at the right hand of God. And as Jesus stands at the right hand of God, he's not just there reflecting in God's glory, he shares in that glory, but he's speaking to God on our behalf. He's interceding for us. He's saying to God, yeah, I know her. 
Yeah, her sin's paid for. Yeah, I know him too. He's mine. So it isn't the Jews. It's not the tribe of Benjamin. It's not the Pharisees. It's not those who religiously kept the law who go home justified. It might actually be the tax collector who goes to the temple and prays, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner, if they put their faith in the risen Lord Jesus. As Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So was it any wonder that proud Paul, the Pharisee, hated these Christians? That was Paul's agenda. He had to stop these Christians at all costs. God's agenda was completely different. And as we see, he did something extraordinary about it. You see, God went out and he met Paul's murderous intent head on with God's grace. So verse 3 of chapter 9. As, Paul, as, as Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Not unreasonably, Paul fell to the ground. And as he did so, he heard a voice from, he- say, a voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now that's an incredible statement. You see, Jesus there so identifies himself with the suffering of the Christian believers at Paul's hands that he says that it is he that Paul is persecuting. Just stop a moment and and think about that. Do you see how precious we are to Jesus? How uniquely wonderful we are in his sight, such that he feels the very pain of every last piece of our suffering. Jesus feels that pain on our behalf. He feels that pain on behalf of the people that Alan was talking about earlier on. But there's more, because this voice was the voice of the risen, ascended Lord Jesus, the King of all creation. And yet Jesus didn't meet Paul as the voice of authority. There was no anger or recrimination in this speech. It was the voice of love. He says to Paul, now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what to do. See, previously Paul, who had been bent on carrying out his own agenda with the authority of the temple authorities behind him, he was now having to be helped up from the ground, led by the hand and led into the city blind. Verse 9, for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. I don't know if you know about it, but in the uh, church nativity at Bethlehem, the main entrance into the church building there is uh, called the Door of Humility. It's set in a much larger arch, which is now bricked up, so that the small doorway in the center is just 120 centimeters high, about that high. And the reason to having such a small entrance is widely believed to prevent proud Ottoman soldiers in the Ottoman Empire days from entering the church on horseback. Well, it's similar for Paul, wasn't it? Proud Paul was just knocked off his metaphorical perch, and he was humbled by God, as Richard was saying in the prayers. He was humbled as he approached Damascus. And for those three days, we very, find, we very soon find out what he was doing. He was fasting, we know that, but he was also praying. But he probably never prayed like this before. And my guess is that he was just there, and he was asking for understanding, or words of explanation. He was saying, how can this be? How can a dead man speak? That's what Paul believed. He believed that Jesus was dead. 
how can this fraudulent man speak from heaven? Well, God was hearing those prayers. He was listening to every word because he was able to tell Ananias all about them in verses 11 and 12. Now, Ananias is a remarkable man. He's remarkable because he's nobody special. He's such an ordinary man. So when the Lord says to Ananias, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Paul, Ananias doesn't respond like Mary responded to the angel and say, well, may it be to you as you have said. No, he blurts out, hang on a minute, there must be a mistake. He tries to tell God all about the missing details. He says, I've heard so many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem, and he's come here now with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Haven't you heard about this man, Lord? In effect, Ananias reminds God of Paul's past sins. But God was well aware of those. And do you know what? Paul's past had absolutely no bearing whatsoever on his, use, on his future usefulness. You see, this man, even with his past, is still God's chosen instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles, their kings, and before the people of Israel. See, Ananias would have been among Paul's most wanted list. And yet when Ananias goes to the house where Paul is to be found, he stoops down, he puts his arm around his shoulder, I'm sure, and he calls him, What does he call him? Brother. Would you have called such a man your brother? And yet Ananias falls into line with God's agenda, doesn't he? And God's agenda is to meet this murderous intent head-on with the utmost grace and acceptance. So Ananias healed his eyes. He baptized him into the Christian family. And no doubt he encouraged him to eat and regain his strength. Later on, Recalling this event, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, but the grace of our Lord was poured out to me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The grace of the Lord was poured out on me abundantly. And just a few days later, in verse 20 of chapter 9, Paul is preaching that Jesus was the Son of God in the very synagogues that he had hoped to go and persecute. What an amazing transformation. But what can we uh, learn from this for ourselves? Three applications. Firstly, I'm sure that not many of you uh, are blasphemers, persecutors, and violent people like Paul was. But some of you may be equally distant from God. Some of you may be so blinded by your own achievements and material comfort that you have no time for God. The Bible calls that idol worship. And in a sense, there's a good test for idol worship. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your energy, your money, and your allegiance. And at the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever or whomever whomever is on that throne is what's of highest value to you. On that throne is what or who you worship. Now, it's true that not many of us uh, walk around saying that I worship my stuff, the things I've got at home, or I worship my job, or I worship uh, this person. But the trail never lies. We may say we value this thing or that thing more than any other, but the volume of our actions speaks louder than our words. 
And in the end, worship is more about what we do than what we say. Or some of you might be treating God a bit like a, an application, an app, on a Sony iPlayer. You see, you download him to your iPlayer, and he appears as one of the nice, neat little icons in a row, alongside all the other applications. And he doesn't, he doesn't interfere with those other applications. But every now and then, you can click on him and use him. Sunday, click on God. Well, I'm feeling guilty, click on God. I need help, click on God. But the rest of the time, he just sits there quietly on your iPhone, not getting in the way. See, what you're not counting on is the power of God. The power of God to break into your life when you're least expecting it. See, Paul wasn't looking for God at the time. He was walking away from the temple where his tradition said he should be meeting God. He was about 150 miles away. And yet God broke in and met him on the road to Damascus. And God's not under any obligation to save any of us. None of us must be saved. None of us have to be saved by God. But God chooses when and where he comes to meet us. Now, in your experience, you might not get bright lights. You might not get a voice on the road to Swindon or wherever. But you might get a newborn baby. Or the death of a relative. Or a crisis at work. Or a life-threatening disease. You see, and sometimes God is at work in those moments without you even realising. They're the kind of moments which stop, make you uh, stop and think about the nature of life and death and the purpose of it all. I don't know if you uh, saw the, uh, the Nativity programme on, uh, uh, on Christmas last year. I'm told it was very good. I missed it. I'm hoping it's going to be repeated again this Christmas. But it was written by uh, Tony Jordan, who's a scriptwriter for EastEnders, and when, we, when the idea was first put to him, he, uh, he thought on his feet and he said to producers, well, okay, what we could do is uh, the, the inn in Bethlehem is a single play, a bit like Allo, Allo. So you'd have this landlord and the Roman soldiers with silly accents, and about 50 minutes into the 60-minute play, there would be a knock on the door, and, this, and our version of René would go to the front door, and there would be Mary and Joseph, and Joseph would say, my wife's pregnant, can you help me? So René goes out to the stable, shows them in, and then, you know, and he walks in on this sort of nativity scene. But then he went home, and he got thinking about it, and he got researching it. And he looked into the nativity and the story behind it and the tradition behind it, and he soon realized that that kind of farce was never going to work. And he writes this. The only thing I know for sure is that the words I read as coming from Jesus Christ are the most truthful thing I have ever heard. As a blueprint for mankind, it is so smart that it couldn't even have come from a clever philosopher. Who would have been smart enough to say, he who is without sin cast the first stone? Wow, that's pretty cool. Tony Jordan's not a Christian in the normal sense of the word, but I believe in that moment the risen Lord Jesus was meeting him in the writing of a screenplay. And the trick is not to lose those moments. The trick is to actually hear God when he speaks to you like that and to be willing to ask, who are you, Lord, as Paul asked? And I believe Jesus is probably calling out to you at those moments just as surely as he spoke to Paul on the Damascus Road.
And if that's you, then in the new year, we'll be starting Christianity Explored again, and we just invite you to join up for that and ask the questions that you need to ask. Who are you, Lord? Secondly, if you're a believer here, well, let's forget Paul for a moment. I wonder whether you're prepared to be an Ananias. See, if God has chosen a few and is going to go around meeting them by the roadside, I guess there's a bit of a tendency in us to want to leave it all to God. And what's the point in us doing the work of scary evangelism if God's going to go and meet people? Why not leave God to get on with it? But ordinary Ananias, I think, in this story was as essential to God's plan as Paul was to his plan to reach the Gentiles. And despite his fear, he went and talked boldly to Paul, didn't he? Well, there's a story told about um, Alexander Wright, who was the pastor of a church in Edinburgh, St. George's Church in Edinburgh, for many years. And he used to tell a story about a man called Rigby. Now, it turned out that Rigby had occasionally been attending St. George's for many years. He lived near Edinburgh, and whenever his business took him into the city, he would go and stay in a hotel near to St. George's. And he'd stay overnight and stay there for Sunday morning so that he could just go along and attend the morning service. But Rigby was a very shy man who found it very difficult to share his faith with other people. So what he would do is this. On the Sunday morning, he would get up from his bedroom, go down to the hotel lobby, and he would find somebody in the lobby, and he would just invite them. And he would say, would you like to come to church with me this morning? And he did that for almost 30 years. And, of course, most people said no. Uh, But some people said yes. On one particular morning, he spoke to somebody there in the hotel lobby saying, would you like to come to the church service with me? I'm just going there now. And the man said, yeah, okay, I'll come with you. And the God worked on that man during the service. And in the conversation afterwards, Rigby was able to explain to him how to become a Christian and helped him to do so there and then. He was so excited and thrilled by this experience that had never happened to before that he thought, I must tell somebody about it. And he didn't know any other Christians in Edinburgh because he just used to go along to this church service now and again and then go home afterwards. So although he had never met the pastor, Alexander White, he decided to go along and knock on the door of the manse. And he had told him that the sermon had been used. So he went along and he knocked on the door. And when Alexander White opened it, he told him, how this man had been taken to church this morning and how he'd given his life to Christ as a result. Of course, Alexander White was very encouraged and grateful for the news. And after thanking Rigby for sharing it with him, he said, well, sorry, I didn't catch your name. What's your your name? And Rigby stammered, well, my name is uh, Rigby. And Alexander White said, did you say Rigby? And he said, yeah. And Alexander White said, Mr. Rigby, just wait there for a moment. I've been waiting years to meet you. And he went back inside his house and he came out with a little file of letters and postcards. And all these letters and postcards were from people who had found Christ at St. George's. And the one thing they had in common was that a shy, reticent man had come to them in a hotel lobby and said, would you like to come to church here this morning? It doesn't take much on our part. God hasn't asked you and me to do a lot. He's done it all. He's doing it all, even now. None of us in this church would be here today unless God hadn't been faithfully calling people to himself for the last 2,000 years. And he will continue to do that. But just as much as God wanted Paul to be his chosen instrument to take the gospel out to the Gentile world, 
He wants us to be ordinary people like Ananias, prepared to reach out to those who God might be calling in ways that we know nothing about. Thirdly, Paul was unique in the history of the world. His calling, his experience was very special to him. He was an apostle of Christ, very soon accepted into that inner sanctum of the early church leaders, all on this strength for this, this encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And Jesus had given him a very special task to do. So we probably shouldn't expect bright lights and voices, although God can do what he likes and it might happen. But that's a good thing for us, isn't it? Because, as Alan was saying, Paul was told how much he would have to suffer for the name of Christ. And I'm not sure that many of us would want to suffer in the same way that Paul did. He tells us in the letter to Corinthians, five times he received 39 lashes, three times he was beaten with rods, he was stoned once, he was shipwrecked three times, He tells us that he was constantly on the move, in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from his own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. And that's just a taste of what Paul had to suffer for the name of Jesus. And the question is, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Turn to page 1180 in your Bibles. Page 1180. And if you just look down to the bottom of the second hand, the first column, verse 3 of chapter 7. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Get it right? Paul says, But whatever was to my prophets, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for this conversion experience on the road to Damascus. We praise and thank you for the way he, uh, he uh, transformed uh, your church, extended your church, brought your church to the Gentiles, uh, taught us so much of the theology we now hold and, and love. Lord, we thank you for his devotion to Christ, for the way that he has prepared to suffer for you and for your name. Lord, we pray that we may know you as well. We pray, Lord, that if we're here today and we still don't know you or we're holding you at a distance, then I pray, Lord, we'd give up the struggle. We would hear your voice and we would allow ourselves to be humbled before you and then lifted up as we put our trust and our faith in you. Lord, we pray if we are frightened, if we are scared of saying uh, that we believe, of saying the truth to other people, then help us, Lord, I pray, just to say those words that you're calling us to say, to love as we're called to love, to help others as we're called to help others. Lord, may we do that in your name.